0: This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com
1: for more shows like this one.
0: Most people would say that the kind of music they like is determined by personal, subjective taste. But a lot of time and energy is spent in the music business trying to predict what consumers will like. Welcome to The Future of What. I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label, Kill Rock Stars. Support for The Future of What comes from Merch Table, Merch Table was created by musicians to help other musicians sell directly to their fans. For 15 years, they've worked with a diverse range of artists to deliver an exceptional customer experience. From projects as big as top 10 billboard ranking pre-orders and early bird ticket sales, to jobs as small as helping a band sell their first t-shirt, Merch Table can manage it all. Visit MerchTable.com and open a store today. Platforms like Pandora and Spotify use complicated algorithms to turn listeners on to new music, while other companies use actual human beings to curate their discovery processes. On this episode, we talked to several people who are in the business of figuring out what music fans might enjoy. So who's better at it, people or machines? It's all coming up on The Future of What. Support for The Future of What comes from SoundExchange. You're listening to The Future of What. We're talking to Jim McDermott. Jim, welcome to The Future of What. Hey, Portia, what's going on? Good to be here. Thank you so much. That's so great to have you. So you recently wrote a great piece for Medium in which you critique an editorial by Google Alphabet's Eric Schmidt. And the thing that jumped out to me from that editorial is that Schmidt uses the word elite a whole bunch when he's describing the humans that curate our music discovery systems on various services. Yeah, And I just wanted you to speak to that for a second. What is up with that? Elites?
2: Well, to put it in context, I think part of what he was writing about was he was taking a shot at Apple and and, and trying to say that Apple are elitists. But really, in terms of like a larger criticism, what he was trying to say was, you know, music should be democratic and you know, curation should be democratic and these people that tell you what you should like are bad and they make for a terrible music experience. And we have technology now that can replace all of that. And, you know, the elites are keeping you from what you really want. And, you know, that's a narrative that having been involved in technology since In in the music business, really, since it started internet technology and digital technology in the mid 90s, I've heard that time and time again by technology people, most of whom don't really understand the music business at all. And they just kind of say like, well, all the music business people are elitist. So machines are going to be the great democratizer. And, yeah, that, that kind of stuck on my cross a little bit when I read his piece.
0: Right. And you say you can't imagine anything more elitist than saying humanity isn't as good as an artificial construct and that your personal nightmare is being told what to listen to by a machine.
2: Yeah. Well, without getting too off the handle, you, you know, there's a, there's a lot of ways to look at this. But one is why do these guys always say that they want to replace human component of the music value chain. Now, what's the intention there? Is it... Because they really want to make it better, or is there some other motivation? And usually, in in these kind of things, when these companies and these individuals kind of talk in technology, talk about replacing the human component of the value chain, it's because they have some kind of technology that they are seeking to fund or seeking to get some kind of huge valuation and then IPO and get you know billions of dollars out of that. They're they're looking. The goal is disruption. And so when he talks about elitism in creation. Really, the undercurrent of that is, well, I want to disrupt that. And then you have to go, well, why do I want to disrupt it? Is it because people are asking for that or because it's really that bad? Or is there some other intent? And really, to me, and again, I've seen it time and time again, what what they want to do is say, this is bad. I have a technology that can replace it. It takes people out of the equation. So now I can put my company out there, IPO, it, get investors and have stuff be worth billions of dollars because it's disruptive. And... To me, just as a, someone who's lived a life of music, I've seen where disruption usually doesn't help musicians and rarely helps consumers. It helps the truly in this equation, which are you know these tech billionaires who have this kind of dystopian future in mind, where you know people don't need to be involved in any of this stuff, and there's just going to be you know this class of uber-rich people. And I, I just think the whole thing is very anti social justice without, <laughs> I don't know if that's where you're expecting me to take it, but that, I think there's an undercurrent of that in, in all of this. And, and, and I say that just having been involved in hearing pitch after pitch from endless companies before, including from companies before Apple even had any intention of getting into music at all, or, you know, predating that where, you know, record company, bad programmer, bad DJ, bad machine. Good. And at the end of the day, it was always a pot of gold at the end of their rainbow nobody else.
0: Well, I love that. And I love it that you're saying that there's a social justice component to it. And that, of course, I mean, you know, as soon as you started talking about this, I started thinking, well, where's the money? Like where, you know, who's who's going to make money on this? Because no one's going to say, you know, oh, I say we absolutely have to take humans out of the equation unless they're going to make money somewhere or save money somewhere. You know, I mean, clearly.
2: Right. And, and, you know, th- the thing is, is I, I don't want to say that there is no value in having databases do music programming. I mean, there's tons of, if you look at radio now, I mean, there's tons of data analysis that goes into choosing what people hear on terrestrial radio. And I don't think it's made terrestrial radio any better. You know, there's been, as I'm sure you're aware, all this consolidation in radio. And it is that image that we have, or some of us have, some of older <laughs> of us have, of like, you know the kind of semi-stone guy sitting in front of a turntable at two o'clock in the morning, putting on, you know, a half-hour album side so he can leave the turntable, yeah, <laughs> and playing whatever he wants. That they don't do that anymore because radio wants to. You know, they realize every second that they're playing records is a second that they're not selling commercials. So let's figure out how we're going to cut up the day and maximize the amount of seconds and maximize the amount of revenue. It isn't really about. You know, really touching people. But that said, I, I do think that there is a place for recommendation engines and things like that in music. But there are serious flaws just because of the way that you know recommendation is done, and the, the and the lack of context and really rich metadata in digital music.
0: And I think that's awesome. I totally want to go down a rabbit hole with you and just talk about major radio, like commercial radio. But I'm gonna I'm gonna restrain myself because I I really want to. Okay. Okay. (laughs) So I wanted to get back to something you said in the article about you actually think Apple Music is doing a pretty good job of their human curation. Can you expand on that a little? Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, I think one of the Apple, and I have to caveat this by saying that I I have friends who I know at Apple who have worked at Apple and and, uh, I, I know a little bit about what they've done since the beginning in terms of programming their main page the iTunes store, and also what they've done for Apple Music. But, you know, essentially what these folks do is, you know, they, when they're putting together playlists, the people who are putting together a lot of these playlists have are specialists in this music and are really passionate about it. And so the thing that I like about Apple Music and about some, some of the playlists in Apple Music are there's surprise there. There's context there. It isn't just like, okay, well, I'm going to listen to a Rock playlist and so here's a fast song, here's a can song, here's a noise song, here's a harmonious song, and it's just random songs. There's thought about the emotional flow of it, what you know, what key it's in, what tempo it's in. There may be some humor in it, the way that the songs segue. It's it's entertaining. It's something that has that was put together by somebody that ha- that's passionate about the music, and as a result, it's touching something in me when I'm listening to it, where it's making me laugh, or it's saying, or I'm saying like, wow, that was such a great segue you know it isn't just saying like here's a genre let me throw a bunch of stuff from that genre into a giant playlist and you can listen to it because that ends up sounding disjointed and i guess as somebody who's a real music fan and somebody who used to make mixtapes for girlfriends and friends or whatever back in the day you know that's what that's what i want i want something that shows me the intellect and the passion and the taste of the person who put it together so that I'm not only learning something about the music, but it's taking me on a little bit of a journey and maybe I'm also learning something about the person that put it together. And that's where it kind of has an emotional component that I don't think that a database can replicate.
0: I think that's really such a great point and I love that about this article. I particularly wanted to talk to you about that because I feel like, you know, sort of the underlying more amorphous point that I got out of the article and that I think of when I think of this music curation via human or, or machine is that, you know, machines may be precise, but human beings aren't. And that's kind of one of our charms. Like we might not actually really know what we like until we hear it. And we like things for reasons that we can't necessarily articulate. You know, so so the idea that you can make a database that will accurately predict what someone's going to like is almost insulting because people are, are notoriously terrible at using words to describe why they like something. We don't know what we want for the spot. We definitely don't want X. And then after the entire process, they end up going with a song by X. <laughs> you know? And it's like, it, I mean, that does happen. You know, this is a thing. This is not, you know, humans are not these, humans are not machines. We're not just, you can't just plug stuff into us and get the exact outcome that you think you're going to get.
2: Yeah. Well, and also, you know, the thing is, you want to be, you know, you can be surprised by humans. And, and, and also, I think sometimes you want to be challenged. You know, I remember I, I was living in a neighborhood called Gumbo in New York, right, when it was starting to, to turn from a really deserted, it's in Brooklyn from a kind of bombed out area that really only artists lived in. And it was, it was a really cool neighborhood. I went down into this, into this club called, called low and I walked in and, and there were maybe, I don't know, 50 people hanging out on the club. And the DJ was playing within you without you by the Beatles. And I thought, that's really cool. It's like 11 o'clock on a Tuesday night. He's playing a Beatles song. And then the next song that he played was possibly maybe by Bjork. Right. <laughs> and, you know, I don't think that there's any machine. And, it, you know, part of that was he was looking at the room. It was what the time of night was. It was who was in there. It was what the, the feeling, the vibe of the whole room was. And he was taking the room someplace. And it was just a guy playing records. It wasn't like, you know, Steve Aoki or whatever up there. It wasn't like some big DJ up there. It was like, you know, it was it was it was just a guy playing records. But the fact that it went from, I actually got a huge smile on my face and I went up and I shook the guy's hand and I'm like, that was just the coolest segue. And everybody in the room was, was totally into it. So the thing is, where is it, You know, do you want it to take you on a journey? Do you want it to kind of expand your mind? You want it to have this context of where it is in place, where you're listening to it, what kind of emotion it's kind of trying to stir in you. It goes way beyond just putting slapping together a playlist. And part of that is, because that DJ has this context of where he's heard or he or she has heard that music and the context of knowing, you know, who the audience is. The metadata that's included in music now in all of these services is extremely limited. You know, if, if, if it has beats per minute, that's a surprise. It doesn't have who played on the records. It maybe has what year it came out and who owns the copyright, you know? So mm-hmm. the question is to somebody like, you know, Eric Schmidt is like, okay, well that person who played those two records back to back in that club, they had this whole life journey and they had all this perspective and all this context for these records and you've just got a file and it says like, you know, it's, it's got the copyrighted information, the name of the artist and the date it was released. How are you going to make that mean something?
0: I'm just thinking, it's so interesting, going back to the very top of the of the questions I asked you with the concept of elitism, because for me, you know, I listened to, I, I love that story that you just told. And I, I think about, you know, I put on Pandora at work yesterday and i said tears for fears right i said i'm going to have the tears for fears channel and they played a song off tears for fears first album and then the second song they played was by depeche mode but it was from like their 5th album mm-hmm. and i was so annoyed i was like how dare well, you well tell me
2: the songs cuz i kn- i tell me the songs cuz i know both <laughs> those bands like so hardcore so
0: but you so know what, what i mean what, what in my mind blood? if you're going <laughs> to play a tears for fears song from 1982 you should play a depeche mode song from their first or second record. You, you know it's like it's you're you're jumping eras. so that annoyed me, but that's because i'm a music elitist, right? like i'm someone who cares about that. it's very likely that the the punter on the street, the random music listener actually wouldn't care because they wouldn't know. and they would just be like, "oh, you know, depeche mode tears for fears, what is that?" like kind of both fit into like mopey british teenage angst bands (laughs) so anything we play off them is fine so there's that question of you know are we really in fact elitists? like what about you know do we believe that everybody deserves to be taken on a a journey of adventure i mean and discovery i do i think everybody's worth it i think people even people who don't really love music as much as i do deserve to learn some new stuff about music so i'm totally on that side but it is interesting because i wonder then if they have an argument you know, it's like, well, you guys are just elitist. So you actually care what your music, what music you're listening to. Well,
2: you know, if, if being called an elitist by somebody, you know, to me, I don't I you know the article I wrote has links in it to different things. And there's one of the links was to the Brady Bunch clip of Johnny Bravo. You ever see that? <laughs> no,
0: I did not click on that. <laughs> okay.
2: Okay. Well, but you, you know what I'm referring to? No. Johnny, the Johnny Bra- Bravo. Okay. Tell us. Okay. In a nutshell. There's a famous episode of the Brady Bunch, and we used to talk about it at major labels kind of all the time, which is there's this Greg, the, these very schlocky record people see the Brady Bunch playing somewhere because they had a band in a few episodes, you may recall, and they see Greg and they pull him out of the lineup and they say, you're going to be the star. We don't need the rest of your family. You're going to be the new Johnny Bravo. And they give him this matador outfit, right? <laughs> and they're... And he's a little, he's like, but I want my whole family to be part of it. And he's like a little disoriented, like, no, no, you're going to be the next biggest thing. And then they open the door and all these girls come in and scream and tear his clothes apart. And he, and at the end, he basically says he doesn't want to do it. And they're like, well, the only reason we hired you is because you fit the suit right? Know? and, and it, it fits you so well. And and it was, so it was like this kind of seeing that as a teenager, I thought like, Oh, okay. Or even younger than that, actually, this is like, a, these are people somewhere trying to homogenize somebody into something that can be just, sucked down by the masses and it goes down real easy and, you know, it really has no caloric content and no substance, but it kind of tastes yummy and it, we'll just keep pumping those out. And I saw plenty of that in the music business. I'm not saying that record company people didn't sign plenty of those types of acts, but, and some people like that stuff, you know, some people just want that sugar-coated kind of stuff that really has no substance and isn't really that good for you. And for them, maybe this thing will be fine. I don't know that everybody needs, to be taken on a journey. You would hope that they would. You would hope that everybody thinks it's important. And I think enough people do think it's important. But when somebody makes sweeping statements like there's no value at all in, in having somebody who's passionate about music and really understands it and has lived it, sharing that with other people, I think that's just awful. It's an awful world to think that that would be tagged as a bad thing. You know?
0: I, I totally agree. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I want to quote you here because you have this great quote later in the article. You say, the most meaningful art has never been created via a democratic process or a popularity contest. It is created via the obsessive creative vision of individuals who are often seeking to destroy the commonplace, the mainstream and the popular. And that leads us to this discussion you you mentioned about new genres, like the creation of new genres. And, and, you know, a machine is never going to allow for the creation of new genres.
2: Yeah, I mean, what it, it's going to look at stuff like this. And I mean, if he's saying that, like, we'll let people choose what the next thing is. Anything that's abrasive or you, know, you try to drop anything in that's that's a little bit different, and it's going to get ironed out. And so many genres. I mean, rap, obviously being the most obvious example, and certainly punk being a, a great example too. It, you know, if if you if the mainstream was given that stuff undistilled at the on the front end, and just you know, told, hey, check this out. This is the new greatest thing. Those genres wouldn't have taken off. It took time for that to assimilate. And what happens is you have tastemakers, you have people that are really into it, go out there and kind of find this stuff, cultivate it, and it it seeps into the popular culture and it and it takes time. But it's, it's always the most passionate artists who are making that music and it's the most passionate music fans who are discovering it and then kind of bringing it back from the wilderness. And then the mainstream eventually you know, absorbs that. And, and think about how much in, in, in everything, in fashion and music and in, in, in everything, in TV commercials, think about how much hip hop and, and punk rock had an, an effect on, on culture eventually. So, and how much, cha- all, you know, how much those things changed the world. I mean, it, it would be a real drag if there was some kind of algorithm that was saying, nah, this is a little bit too hardcore for these people. It's a little bit too harsh. Let's, let's, not, let's, let's iron this down.
0: Exactly. And so I think the argument you're making is really the argument for art. You know, you're saying we need people on the fringes. We need musicians who are pushing the boundaries and testing stuff. And, you know, we're not going to have that if we we just homogenize everything, if everything becomes middle of the road and, you know, based on beats per minute and you take emotion and humor and everything out, which I think is a really great point.
2: Well, I think it gets back to the social justice aspect of things, you know, as well, because You know, when when people are creating uh, something out of nothing and it's just, you know, a person, I don't know that that guys like Eric Schmidt are that interested in that because you can't IPO that. You know, you can't go out and get venture capital. Let's just let's make a real (laughs) hard core example. Suicide, you know, Mm -hmm. the the damn suicide or the or the pistols. Right. You couldn't. Go to VCs. You couldn't have Sid Vicious turn off or John Lydon turn off and put his feet up on the table and spit or whatever, and say, "Okay, give these guys, you know, give these guys fourteen million dollars. They're going to go make a record." And I mean fourteen million. <laughs> right. <laughs> you, you, it just wouldn't happen. Right. So, so the thing is, what I think he's trying to, to push, and I do think that the, the ultimate end game from these kind of guys is is just to have the machines ultimately making the music, you know, because they can they can control that. They can IPO that. They can make that into something that generates a tremendous amount of money. It's not a person that has flaws and foibles and maybe drug addiction or neuroses or anxieties, or maybe they're difficult to deal with because they put their difficulty into their art, you know, maybe they're not compliant, you know, and this is, this is the thing. Read what he's saying. Really boil it all down. This is like 1984. This is, this is going to be a big, machine of compliance that we will all listen to that never challenges us and gives us exactly exactly what we want and is not the best thing and the answer is no it's the worst thing (laughs) it's the worst thing
0: well jim mcdermott is a social media consultant and writer specializing in music jim what a pleasure to talk to you thanks so much for coming on the future of what
2: thank you so much for having me and thank you for doing the show i really appreciate it
0: business cats by Mika Miko. You're listening to the future of what? If you're enjoying this program, like us on Facebook and become a subscriber on iTunes. You're listening to the future of what? We're talking to Brandon Day. Brandon, welcome to the future of what? Hello. Yay. So you have to tell us to start off with what exactly Marmoset is and what you guys do.
1: Marmoset is a full-service music licensing house based here in Portland. We work primarily with independent bands, usually directly with some independent label work as well. And we collaborate mostly with advertising agencies and those kind of projects, as well as independent films, mostly short films as well. So things you would see on Vimeo, professional work though, you know, a lot of wedding films, small business spotlights, those things. So it's fun. We get to work with independent music and independent film as well.
0: Awesome. Awesome. So basically, licensing for those people who may not be aware of it is the business of getting music into film, TV, commercials, other kinds of advertising like Vimeo things that you were talking about.
1: Yeah, exactly. And it's also helping facilitate that whole process as well. So when we're working with a larger project, sometimes the clients don't quite know what they want. So they may have a brief that they're looking for, maybe a temp track. And what we're doing is we're going in, and we're trying to kind of curate a selection of music that may work for them. So the process can help aid the project as well as do the paperwork that, you know, is always necessary to make sure that, you know, the terms are all correct so that everybody's happy.
0: Right. So this feeds in perfectly because what we're talking about today is sort of this idea of there's that slogan on the Pandora website that says, this is a radio station that plays only music that you like. And it's like, well, how do you know what I like?
1: Yeah. You know?
0: <laughs> And that's a really interesting thing in licensing. So you basically get approached by, let's say, an advertisement for something. And they're like, we think that it should have music that sounds... Do they usually say stuff like, you know, upbeat, cheerful, or like heartfelt and Mm -hmm. whatever. And they sort of throw a bunch of words at you. Mm -hmm. And then you guys are like, okay, how do we find... Music that's going to make them go, yes, that's the song.
1: Exactly. And a lot of times, is what are they really trying to say? What are they really looking for? So maybe they'll say, We want something playful, but not childish. We want it to be, you know, upbeat, but not too carefree. So we have to (laughs) actually look in. Yeah, we actually have to think, okay, you know, what's the project they're doing? What are the constraints around it? What are they actually trying to get out of this? And then here's a selection try this. Do you like it? Do you like these songs? Do they work? If not, what are you feeling? You know, what direction would you like to go in? So then, you know, there's the process of actually trying to get at what they want if they don't always describe it perfectly.
0: Do you guys have a team of people that do all of that together? So like if a new client shows up and has a new project and then they say the thing like, you know, upbeat but not too cheerful, mm-hmm. how many of you deal with that?
1: So we have uh, four music supervisors on staff. That That's their sole job. That's what they're doing all the time. So, you know, they're working from the beginning of the creative brief or the temp track sometimes through, you know, the process of actually pitching and trying to find the perfect song.
0: Wow. Do they collaborate with each other? Do they talk about it?
1: Yeah, yeah. A lot of times all four supervisors are actually pitching on the same project. So what they're doing is they're taking a selection of songs they think will fit because, you know, music is so nuanced and it really is subjective based upon personal preferences. So they're talking with each other and saying, hey, this is what I'm feeling for this project. Does this work? What are you feeling? And then try to find some middle ground or some direction from there.
0: Do they ever, have you heard any stories of, of having just like really crazy clients who where they like tell you something and then they don't like anything you bring them and then they say something else and (laughs) they don't like anything you bring them.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And a lot of times funny is that they'll say, we want this kind of sound but not this kind of sound. And the thing they're saying, we do not want this, they go with at the end.
0: Right. You know,
1: and that may be (laughs) through like, you know, Four rounds or it may be, you know, and then go back to round one or, or whatever. So there's a lot of that. And a lot of times, you know, when you're working with creative projects with an advertising agency, they, the ad agency may want one thing, but the client may want another. So, you know, you have.
0: Oh, uh, too many cooks, right? Yes. Multiple so, people.
1: Yeah. You may think that you have found the perfect song, but then when the client hears it, you know, they want that thing the ad agency doesn't. And they ultimately have final say.
0: Right. And you guys are doing, I mean, what I would consider the Lord's work in that you're working largely with independent artists and Mm -hmm. independent labels. So basically, you're not going to be fielding calls for, you know, red hot chili peppers and, you know, black eyed peas or whatever. Yeah. You're going to actually be going to the independent community, which is, you know, I love that. Mm -hmm. I can't say no to that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's really great. Totally. getting some of that music out there that maybe a lot of people haven't heard.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know we're working with so we actually assign bands to our, to our roster. So what we are doing is trying to form some sort of community within these artists. So let's say we have twenty artists that have you know maybe an atmospheric sound. So we have those people to go to when those calls come in. So it's nice. We're not actually reaching out to the artists as much after the fact, saying, "Hey, we got this project. Do you have anything?" And we're actually being proactive. And trying to to build a catalog of work that we can pitch from and hopefully support these artists without them having to do any scrambling.
0: That's awesome. Do you have any songwriters on on your in your roster who will write for ads? Like, there are people who do that.
1: Yeah, yeah. So that's another part of what we do at Marmoset is original music mm. uh, is what we call it. So we have some composers that generally do composing full time. And they may have a home studio, they may have some studio they go to work at, but that's what they're doing. They're working on those same kind of briefs we get in through the supervision team. They're getting those same things in, but they're creating the song instead of trying to find it.
0: I gotcha. So now this is a very, in my opinion, a very human activity. Like you clearly need people to do this because there's so much back and forth. You know, the human gives the song ideas, the client human says, that's not just right. The the human goes back and tries to find another thing that might be better. Do you think, I mean, it's just interesting because today we're also talking about people who run companies that use algorithms to do this same type of music discovery to try to find something that people like. I mean, it sounds to me impossible that you could do this with an algorithm. What do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's super hard to do it with an algorithm. And while we do utilize supervisors for a lot of the larger projects, for the smaller projects, we actually have a web-based licensing system. So there actually is, you know, tags on every one of our songs that are online. But those tags are not through an algorithm. We do that all in-house, you know, I've done it personally a lot. Our team is doing that daily. You know, adding tags for mood tags, arc, energy, things like that, that will be helpful to a filmmaker. So even that part, the part that's more, I guess you could say, automated because it's the user actually finding the song, is still very human because the whole process of putting those songs up you know, took a lot of human power and a lot of time and a lot of thought as to how to describe what we're listening to. Right. And
0: I guess even Pandora could say that, the Music Genome Project, that at some point it took hundreds of human hours <laughs> to <laughs> code all those songs and everything. Yeah. Definitely. And that's just interesting because, of course, there's no uniform coding system. I mean, Mm -hmm. it sounds like there's certain things like mood. There's, you know, beats per minute or something.
1: Yeah, we call it energy to make it nice and easy. Right. uh, Yeah, BPM, you could always look at too. And there's a lot of technical terms that you could look at when you're listening to music. But the way we're looking at it is through the eyes of a filmmaker who may or may not have that much musical experience. So, you know, like energy is pretty universal. It's this feel like it's a high energy thing with this match like a sports spot you know or is it more low energy is it about family things like that so that may have a slower pacing <laughs> so we're really looking at <laughs> family is low energy yeah. generally low energy, <laughs> Maybe high energy I guess.
0: <laughs> we're not making a value judgment family. who needs it <laughs> who needs it so what's your favorite part
1: of the job that you do yeah i mean i love listening to the new music that comes in you know we are reaching out to artists a lot to work with but also we have a lot coming in and we've built our roster primarily on submissions we never thought it was going to be that way but it's really word of mouth so we're getting these artists coming to us that you know i've never heard of we've never heard of and are maybe making things in their living room or you know maybe at a small studio but really 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 great work that just hasn't made it out there for the general music community to to hear really so i just love listening to new music and, uh, you know, seeing people's take on, on different genres or ideas, too.
0: Right. So do you do, I mean, it sounds like the, f- the first step of this is actually what you like.
1: Mm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, it totally is. And that's so subjective as well, too. So right. what we're trying to do is when we're listening to new music, we're taking kind of the self out of it a bit. Because I have my, you know, the kind of music I like and it's very specific. But... You know, music's so subjective and can really touch people in different ways with different backgrounds and things like that. So when I'm listening to music, yeah, I mean, it is partially what I like, um, but I also look at what other people will like.
0: Right, and you probably, because I was just thinking, you know, I mean, I sort of have to do that in my job too because it's Mm -hmm. stuff that I like, but I also have to think, how will this sell? Like, Mm -hmm. Will this be something that sells? And so for you, I mean, I'm sure you listen to something and then you're like, Well, maybe, you know, EDM isn't exactly my thing, but we need more in our catalog right now. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think this is good EDM, so we should
1: take it on. Yeah. Especially when you're trying to really, you know, we try to build a full catalog of, of music and a full roster of artists so that when somebody comes to us and they have a need, we can... We can, you know, find something for them. So with that, you know, there may be holes in my personal, you know, like certain genres I don't love so much, but we have to have that offering because people do love, you know, all these sorts of music. But yeah, it is really hard, you know, to take the self out of it a bit when you're listening to music.
0: Do you ever do that in the office? I mean, I know we've talked to, because one of the features we do on this show is called Gatekeepers Roundtable. So we talk to people who are gatekeepers about songs that they loved that where they were like, I absolutely have to work with this band somehow, yeah. you know, just usually off a demo or, or something yeah. like that. So do you also sort of shop things to your compatriots at your office where it's like you hear something and you're like, I think I like it. I think it's the mm-hmm. right thing, but I'm not totally sure. And I want other opinions
1: all the time, all the time. Yeah. I mean, there's some artists that come to us and it's just a clear Yes. Like there's no, I don't need to check because I know this is so, so amazing, but there's some that is really gray area. You know, maybe I love it, but it may not license that well, or maybe I don't personally attach to it, but it may license well. And I always want to, you know, get a second or third opinion on that. Those ones that seem a little bit more on the fence.
0: Do you feel like at this point you have a really good sense of what, whether a song will license well when you first listen to it?
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, honestly, it doesn't take very long of listening to the song. I don't even have to usually listen to the whole thing at once. You can get a feel of it pretty quickly based on, you know, production value, pacing, things like that, different instruments being used and just how it comes across as a listener. But yeah, I mean, we have, you know, a roster of around 500 artists and in the past year you know we licensed uh, 75% of those which is pretty darn good.
0: Yeah, that's a really
1: good percentage. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of what we're we're aiming for as well, but and that makes me feel good and makes me feel like our team's doing that, you know our our job correctly, I guess when we have most of our artists getting some sort of licensing play. So.
0: Definitely. That's really impressive. And then how do you guys stay on top of trends because that's one of the things about licensing is is you know my friend who's a licensor says that, like, right now, anything that sounds vaguely like the Black Keys mm-hmm. is licensing like crazy.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, like, the Black Keys have been—we've been getting calls to Black Keys for years. Yeah. You know, and uh, we see that. And when we're—I mean, I look at a lot of the charts and I look at the blogs and things like that, you know, see what's coming out. And there's so many, you know, trends are changing so quickly. And, like, hip-hop is one that seems to have a new trend every every week, too. So like staying on top of that, you know, how the sound like right now trap is still in and there's some other things that are coming in and out and, you know, it's hard to keep track of everything, but we have to stay on top of that. And when we're talking to our producers, let's say for hip hop, they are a lot of times trying to match those trends as well. So they're sending music that will follow kind of what people are listening to.
0: I feel like I've, I feel like, you know, I don't watch enough TV to stay on top of it and it changes so quickly because I was thinking about those like sort of soft singer songwritery mm-hmm. type things that mm-hmm. like really plinky, like cute things
1: that were really big a few years ago. Yeah. But apparently
0: that's not big anymore. It still
1: goes. I mean, people it still, still like it. Yeah. And that's something that I've always thought too is okay, what's the lifespan of a song right. for licensing? Yeah. And, you know, I've been with Marmoset for five years and some of the songs that have worked three or four years ago are still licensing really, really well. So I think that the life of a song for licensing is longer than, at least I thought previously. So that may, that trend may be going away, but there's still people kind of holding on to that aesthetic.
0: Yeah, that is such an, I, I just feel like there's so many moving parts to the field of licensing, but mm-hmm. yet it's such an important part of artists' careers, You mm-hmm. know, because a really good license can totally make your whole year. Yeah, and yeah. What, how about fees? What have you guys been seeing in, in the way of fees? Yeah, as far as what we're getting in for licenses? Yeah, I mean, have they, because for a while there, they were super high and then Mm -hmm. they kind of dropped. Have they sort of come back up or like are they in the middle? Like what would you say?
1: Yeah, I can't speak on that too much. I do know that Advertising has been pretty consistent through the years that we've been working with it. And then, of course, you know, the filmmaking licenses that we work with is pretty steady as far as what we're getting in. But yeah, I mean, it really depends because usually when you're working with advertising, for instance, the music comes at like the 11th hour. It's usually the tail end of the budget, unfortunately. Right. Um, So we're dealing with that a lot too, you know. So maybe you have this huge spot and it's worth a lot of money, you know. The agency has a bunch to work with, but they've already spent most of it and they have this little chunk or hopefully a bigger chunk uh, available. So it really, really depends on the situation and, and the budget.
0: Right. But you haven't seen a trend over the five year last five years of like it's going down or
1: it's going up or... I haven't seen a trend, no. Yeah. We haven't really discussed it much. So I guess I can't speak on it for 100% <laughs> certainty, but yeah, it seems, nothing major.
0: It seems like it's going up to me a little bit. Mm-hmm. I think it's going back up, you know, because there was a time when it was really fantastic. You know, yeah. getting a, a li- one sync could just, you know, pretty much make a, an entire
1: salary yeah. for a band for a year. That still happens. Yeah, and we get that once in a while too. The really big projects that can take up that coffee jump or whatever some of these these people are working with, and uh, we've actually had artists quit their jobs because the licensing has been so good oh, wow. and be able to focus on music. So those that still happens for sure. That's great. Um, It's not every day by any means, but, you know, we do get those super large projects in.
0: Yeah, that's so great. And you guys should feel really good about yourselves because you're helping artists be career artists. (laughs) Yay. (laughs) It's fun. We love it. Brandon Day is Artist Relations Manager at Marmoset. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it.
3: Diamonds and stones, stones, stones. With pearls, I've painted myself a home. got to hold gotta keep that love in your life all the hearts are gold 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 when they're shined up just
0: was Rubies and Rocks by Tau and Mira. Support for The Future of What comes from Merch Table. Kill Rockstars has partnered with Merch Table for almost six years now, and they've come through for us in a lot of ways. Like when the comedian Kurt Braunohler wanted a face towel with his face on it? Merch Table found a way to make this, and it's been one of our most popular items in our mail-order store. KRS loves Merch Table. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on iTunes and leave us a comment. To find out what's coming up next, follow us on Twitter at K-R-S-F-O-W. You're listening to The Future of What. We're talking to William Nix. William, welcome to The Future of What.
4: Hey, thanks so much for having me.
0: So Rumblefish is a really interesting company. and You guys do really interesting stuff. So can you tell us a little bit about just what Rumblefish does in general?
4: Yeah, so Rumblefish is a music licensing company, but we have kind of our hands in a a lot of different hemispheres. We do the traditional sync. We do a lot of micro-sync which Mm -hmm. is apps or marketplaces on your phone. And then we do a lot of network monetization for YouTube videos, for user-generated content. Cool. Yeah, so we're all over the map.
0: Yeah, so you're all over the map. So the micro-sync is particularly interesting because that's for people. Can you explain micro-sync a little bit?
4: Yeah, so micro-sync is generally user-generated content, which is you have your phone out, you take a little video, you can pop it up to Shutterstock or uh, Social Cam or Animoto, whatever app you have for video on your phone. And then we populate the music for that app, and then you can upload that into YouTube.
0: And you get to choose, right? Correct. And how do you choose?
4: How do you choose the music? Yeah. Uh, What are your options? That's the curation part that I do as the senior music supervisor. So we have different buckets for different apps, depending on what the app is or what the video is. I curate the music for whatever situation that may be, and then they can choose from those
0: songs. And what are the, do they choose by mood? Do they choose by like, what are the criteria?
4: Yeah, so we tend to break it down for what makes sense for the people that would be using that app. So it's typically a mood or an occasion. So like love or family reunion or backyard barbecue, whatever that situation may be. And then we build the music around an occasion or a scene instead of being like, here's a rock genre, which we do as well. But typically the occasions and scenes work better for that type of ad.
0: Has that been pretty popular? Have people been really responding to that? Yeah, it works really well. And how does it, it monetizes through like a flat fee? Is that how people do it or how do, how yeah, do they Yeah,
4: they, they purchase like a, a license through the app that's already taken care of from our deal with the company that runs the app. And then when people upload it, then they can monetize it on YouTube for the artist. And we do that on the artist's behalf.
0: Cool. Track. So you as senior music supervisor, tell us about what you do all day long. <laughs> <laughs> so
4: I do uh, typically two things. One is the traditional sync, which is sort of a, what Brendan was talking about earlier. Are, you know Clients or companies come in and ask for a specific style of track. I'll do that. But I also do the buckets for these apps and other music marketplaces that we run. And that can be hundreds of songs or 10 really curated songs or anything in between.
0: And do you guys have anything automated? Do you have any algorithms that you use or is it all human? It's all human. I love that. Yeah. It's so cool. Yeah. I remember in the early days of Rumblefish or at least the early days of me knowing about Rumblefish that I got pitched, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. on on that whole thing and I remember there was a wheel with colors.
4: Yeah, the, our mood wheel.
0: The mood wheel, yeah. which I thought was amazing. Yeah, yeah. So that's one option for customers, right? They can be like, I'm feeling kind of pale yellow. Yeah, today. totally.
4: So they can go either onto our store or uh we used to have an app that had it as well and you know, you slide up to the top right and it's happy and yellow. And then you'll get a certain selection of songs like that, or bottom left is, you know, dark and stormy. You get <laughs> something for that too. So that was really fun to play around with. That was around right when I came on as well.
0: So when you're doing your curation, how do you do it? Do you do it similarly to how Brandon was talking about with like tempo and yeah. The
4: mood? Yeah, he was totally right in that it's all over the place, depending on what the client wants or what the final thing needs to be, and they can be really specific. They want, you know, a Destiny's Child version of this, but we can't afford Destiny's Child, so find us something like this. Or just, we want something upbeat. And then that's all they say. So it, it, it's all over the place how specific and how detailed they want their music to be. Mm-hmm. And that's sometimes good and sometimes, you know, more challenging to work with.
0: Definitely. Yeah. And how do you guys do it with the buckets? Like, you basically get to put stuff in the buckets that you think is appropriate. Correct. So you're not actually pleasing an actual client? Correct. Right? Yeah. Do you ever find, I mean, do you guys ever go through and look at the the stuff that's in the buckets and say, like, oh, this song has never been chosen?
4: Oh, yeah, for sure. Oh, yeah, we monitor what does well, what has longevity, so we keep those in. If something's not selling or not being picked enough, you know, we swap it out for something else. So, yeah, we're constantly monitoring and maintaining, managing those buckets.
0: See, that's so interesting because you kind of do get to know what people like then.
4: Yeah. Yeah, you, you can kind of see certain trends from certain age groups or demographics. and That's
0: amazing. Like that. Do you Have you ever figured out your success percentage? Like 65% of everything you picked has been totally used and people love it? Oh, yeah. Oh, man, I could say a really high percentage and just tout myself. Here. Yeah, you could. You could uh, just lie. No high. Yeah, I know,
4: right. <laughs> <laughs> no, we do pretty well. You know, out of any given 10 songs, probably seven or eight tend to stick around. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah.
0: That's great. Yeah. That is a good percentage. Yeah. But I love the idea of the feedback. That's just that's just rad that you can actually yeah totally. see what's working. Yeah. And how often do you change stuff out? Is that like an ongoing, constant thing? Um,
4: it sort of depends. Some are completely satisfied like the first time around, and some stick with it, and some swap out every month, every six months. Some are seasonal. You know, Christmas is coming up, so we're already starting to work on Christmas playlists, Christmas buckets. Right. So it just depends on the app and what they're schedule is really
0: gotcha how many people are on your team with you
4: there are two other people on my team with me
0: and do you guys do a lot of that collaboration where you talk to each other and say what do you think of this song where should we put this yeah typically we'll get a pitch
4: in and then you know it'll come through me and then we can say like all right well this is what i found do you think this sounds well for this will you think it'll work well with this things like that
0: well what about the stuff that you put in the buckets do you get a chance do you guys swap stories Um, on those
4: that's Oh, that's just you?
0: You're the man. (laughs) Well, yeah. Do you ever wish or are you ever like, oh, I need help? No, so, yeah, (laughs) totally. And,
4: yeah, it's nice that they can do that with the team. Like, uh, you know, I'm swamped or, like, this one isn't resonating with me. Like, can you help me figure this out? Or, like, what have you found recently that you think would fit with this? So, yeah, it's definitely not a one-man show by any means. Right.
0: So what is your favorite part of your job?
4: Uh, It's going to sound cliche, but just listening to music all day is tough to get mad at. Like, even if it's not my style of music... You can only complain so much about listening to music all day. <laughs> and with that, we work with a lot of independent artists and labels, and just knowing that we are able to get them out there, potentially to more exposure than they would have on their own, is deeply satisfying.
0: Very cool. Yeah. yeah. And how do people find out about Rumblefish? Like, let's say you're an independent musician and you want to submit your music to you guys. How do people find out how to do that? got a
4: website, and uh, rumblefish.com and you can go through there and it'll tell you everything you need to know every process about getting signed up
0: with us anything you need to know with that was it hard at first to get started with people and now is it kind of rolling in or how you know how yeah, do Yeah, we've definitely streamlined
4: now? it a little more. It, it used to be a more intense process and now it's it's pretty streamlined and easy to get in.
0: Right. And how many of your artists would you say are from Portland? Are they largely from everywhere or are they largely from here?
4: Man, that's a good question. We definitely have a lot of artists here, but we also have an enormous catalog. So I'd be tough to guess on the percentage of who is from Portland or not.
0: Yeah, we have a similar situation where like a lot of our biggest artists happen to be from Portland, but we've just got people from everywhere, you know. I think the internet age has really changed things because it's, like, so easy to send totally, MP3. like MP3. It doesn't yeah, matter, where, doesn't you matter where you're from, yeah. Yeah. So you get submissions from artists. You listen to them. You decide what bucket these th- should go in. Do you ever reject anybody? I mean, obviously.
4: We don't reject anybody, but there's definitely a sense of, like, all right, well, welcome to the catalog, but you're not going to be our front line. <laughs> And that's something like Ryan was, just you can tell immediately, like some people are just in their basements sending stuff to us, which is fine. It's fantastic. But you can tell the production value or just pretty quickly you get into a beat of being able to tell if something is going to work or work well. Right. And so when you don't hear that immediately, we just have so much music that we kind of have to move along.
0: Right. So talk for a minute about your third thing that you guys do, which is you manage YouTube Licenses for people, uh,
4: network monetization on YouTube. So if people upload a video using a track of one of our artists that we represent, we handle the monetization of that track for the artist. Cool. Just so they don't have to get in there and do it themselves. It's it's a ton. We do. I mean, fifty thousand videos a day for monetization for artists that we represent.
0: And those would mostly be independent artists. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I assume that artists that have labels probably have the labels doing the monetization. Usually? Correct. Yeah, yeah. I, I would assume. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think. That's yeah, so it's a lot of independent and
4: just you know one-off artists that we do that for.
0: Right. Now you said you do work with some independent labels. Mm-hmm. How do you do? You do all their YouTube monetization as well as all their licensing.
4: Yeah, Sometimes it depends on if the label wants to handle it themselves. Then we don't make a fuss about that or anything. But if they want us to do it, then yeah,
0: totally. Cool. So someone, a label can come to you and actually be like, we want you guys to do our licensing. Yeah. Oh, that's great. I mean, that's yet another option yeah. Yeah. for for people. Well, William Nix is the Senior Music Supervisor at Rumblefish. Thank you so much for coming on The Future of What.
4: Thank you. It was fun.
5: It's so so hot, but the track is torture. Thanks, supporters, don't you agree? She burns up the rappers with 80 degree heat. He he, bring on the giggle attack, Mr. tickle and the slap. We're all my regulars at. Scratch my back and I'll yes, scratch yours Bright white lights and jet black claws Get back your this board, sports Catholics. Pump up the sneakers of sound waves cause traffic Talk magic, to too loose, it's boomer bass To boost and shake, hallucinate Lucy said they said peanut sauce She comes forth in a beat-up horse Free love lords cut lemony snippet Speak sweet. colours up, Melanie Griffiths This is macromantia, banter, flawless Presence is felt like a batch of Santa clauses Macronorms, Drive your wildlife and cats and portions. By the reason and causes, close so hot, but the track and scorches. that's a call. your wildlife and cats and portions. By the reason and causes, close so hot, with the track and scorches. Macronormus, that's a call. your wildlife and cats and portions. By the reason and causes, close so hot, with the track and scorches. Macronormus, that's a call. your wildlife and cats and portions. By the reason and wrap the causes, so <laughs> with the track and on boom bar, scoops ah, uh, fruit, yum, come get your crew cut, boo-cum, you can't rub on boom scoops up. Uh, Food, yum, come get your crew cup. I punch on rhymes so they see a head of stars so that are several parts, it was shredded like lemongrass. Set apart in the mad speed read. fancy bleeder, the bad diva, and speak easter, pick up Einstein, right rhymes the tree of life, I tried time. Why cry when you can laugh and laugh? Put everything down and run a bubble bath. Cast time things change suddenly. Wanted to play fake, hey ha, call me Amelie. Amelie. watch me grow so beef Please set your feet on, drink to the teapot. We watch as it all just goes by. Rhetoric reads, please, please God don't die. Oh my, I just did a 360 Am I a dream pixie. Please, someone pinch me. Skin deep, I don't know, fill the pinprick. Come along with a song, you can. Force between, war dreams dreams Caller keeps, corpse it screams For aubergine, or for me the law that To torn fatigue, talk is cheap or repeat To scorch speed. the speed, of force it seems War is me when life's lost I am myself, yes, I am my boss Why watch when you can make history? Didn't know what to do, so I straight kiss for me Listerine, fresh breath, split gazoons to booth, whatever kids don't, twist the truth Split the group, tie-dye, dialysis One man's land cry dialysis My balance, appreciate all the beauty Love, truth, chaos signed, yours truly Macronormous, that's a chorus Drive your wireless Portions, Rapper is in a rap for causes, go so hot with the track of scorches, Macron, the static drive your wireless and cats and portions. Rapper is in a rat for causes, go so hot with the track of portions, Macron, the static corps, drive your wireless and cats and portions. Rapper is in a rap for causes, go so hot with the track of scorches, Macron, the static drive your wireless and cats and portions. Rapper is in a rap for causes, flow so hot with the track of scorches.
0: That was Scorch by Macromantics and that's our show the music you heard today was used by permission you heard Mika Miko, Tao and Mira Macromantics, and of course our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by the Delta Five, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and leave us a review for more info on our shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash the future of what our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol, and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rockstars you next week,
3: can I have a taste of your ice cream? Can I lift the crumbs from your table? Can I interfere in your crisis? No, mind your own business. No, mind your own
0: business. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network.